0: Good afternoon and welcome, everyone. It's uh, great to do this project. I'm really excited about it. Uh, there's lots of stressors going on at Harbor UCLA, which was the real impetus to starting this project. But before I get there, I want to just thank uh, Charles Tentindo and the my acting studio in Long Beach, where I'm actually taking some classes right now. i my on my first stand-up comedy class. Don't expect any stand-up routines from me because I'm not quite there yet. But uh, it's, I can recommend his acting studio. And I also want to uh, shout out to the mental health partnership with UCLA. They've uh, been really professional and on target when we do these workshops. They're uh, um, promoted and they support all the technical services. So thank you for doing all that. And then I also want to introduce my team. Some of them might be on the Zoom right now. And after I do my introduction, if my team can raise your hand in the chat and I'll let you introduce yourselves as well. So just a little bit about how this project started. About a year ago, I was approached by some of the nurse managers at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. And they asked me to start working with their nurses. There's about 3,000 nurses at Harbor UCLA. And they said that they are experiencing a high amount of burnout, compassion fatigue, secondary stress. And they, what they asked me to do is rewire their staff for happiness, which seemed like a tall order at the time. And then I gave it some thought, and I thought to myself, why not go back to positive psychology and well-being and start that project with the nurses. And so that's exactly what happened in May of 2019. I started working with first postpartum and delivery and then expanding it to other nurse stations around the hospital. And we were about to continue this year around May when COVID-19 struck And I realized that more than ever, well-being and using gratitude and promoting resilience is so important at this time. And so rather than just continuing with the nurses, I thought it would be nice to expand it to the entire hospital. And so I'm on a COVID-19 task force, which is doing that, and I thought, why not expand it to other Mental health professionals around the county, and so the the topic for today will be about burnout, compassion fatigue, and secondary trauma, specifically as COVID nineteen is affecting our lives. But really, the focus is on well being. So I'm not going to do a stand up comedy routine, but I'm hoping to add some levity, and I have a lot of uh, interesting videos that I can share with you. And I'm hoping also that you can take this information with you and start practicing on your own. So start using your journal. I have my journal. I carry it everywhere. And starting to use the exercises that I'm going to talk about as a way to promote your well-being. So that's the the background for this project, but a little bit more about me. So I've worked at Harbor UCLA since my fellowship year in 2000. And uh, after my fellowship year, I went to Twin Towers Correctional Facility and worked with mainly duly diagnosed uh, women who were there for repeated offenses or recidivists. And it was a research grant that used psychosocial rehabilitation to really reintegrate them into mainstream and go back to society and thrive so that was the goal and we used psychosocial rehab because not only did we work in the jail we also worked outside of the jail after release and provided things like parenting classes and um, substance abuse programs and housing support financial and so on and That really was a very rewarding project. When the grant, I came back to Harbor UCLA and I uh, was the director, clinical director of the ami Able, which is a ACT team, a sort of community treatment team. And I did that for about 13 years. And that again was very rewarding. A lot of what I did there was trauma treatment, but also working with uh, severe mental illness, to really generate a life worth living as we say in DBT or a meaningful life rather than the sequence of going in and out of medical settings. And then in 2019, myself and four other emergency medicine physicians applied for a grant from California Victim Compensation Board and we're able to receive funds to begin a trauma recovery center. So that brings me to now. So we've been working at Harbor. Our name is Safe Harbor Trauma Recovery Center. We see people who experience interpersonal violence in many focal population areas like domestic violence. We treat people who come in with immigration trauma, um, asylum seekers, We see people who have uh, experienced gang violence, human trafficking, and so forth. So with that, I want to introduce the team that's here on the Zoom. And those people who are my team are also welcome to add comments as we go and add also their perspective. So if you can raise your hands and you'll be unmuted to speak.
1: I think I'm going
2: first. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Nessa Feinstein. I'm a fourth year doctoral student at Pepperdine University working with Dr. Saberi
0: at the Trauma Recovery Center. Thank you. Thanks, Nessa. Feel free to jump in and add perspective or insight that you have to anything I'm talking about. All right. So today's agenda, after introductions, which we just did, uh, we're going to start with burnout, compassion fatigue, and secondary trauma, and really uh, define them, discuss them, show some videos about them, uh, share some statistics, and so on. This is not going to be the major part of my talk. Again, my focus is on well-being. So from there, we're going to talk about brain neuroplasticity and rewiring for happiness, which was the original request by the nursing staff. And from there, we'll go to the history of positive psychology and the the first studies that were introduced and really the focus being on wellness uh, and well-being. We'll talk about PERMA model, which is really going to be the model that we're going to keep using throughout day one and day two. Uh, and PERMA stands for Positive Emotions, Engagement, Relationship, Meaning, and Accomplishments. So positive emotions is going to be really what we'll focus on today, and gratitude. And we'll have a little break at 2.30, and we'll hopefully end with some questions and comments by 3.45. Some suggestions for rewarding awarding workshop today... Uh, So usually this is in person, and I ask for respect because people do participate and talk. But there is ability to write comments, and I'm hoping that the comments could be respectful. Another concept I want to introduce is uh, radical inclusion, this idea, uh, we are here together, the Ubuntu philosophy from South Africa, I am because we are. And I say that because I, I was at a spiritual retreat, and there was a South African shaman who was talking about the experiment with the children who were presented with some fruit and were told the first person to reach it can eat all the fruit. And of course, they held hands and ran together and enjoyed the fruits together. So I'm hoping we can enjoy our fruits together today and have a radical inclusion philosophy as we go. Uh, Some people are not sharing very much, uh, so confidentiality applies only to the comments if people are sharing some personal things, but also my own. I tend to be rather disclosing with my personal information, and so uh, to the degree it's possible to keep that confidential. Ask questions, make comments in chat. I'm open to feedback as we go as well. If there's some feedback in chat that you'd like to give even early, I'm hoping to look at that uh, at each 45-minute interval. Continue practicing the suggested exercise when it's over. I'm hoping you can get a journal if you don't already have one and try to keep using the exercises as you go every day. Keep your mind and heart open. This is a different experience. For me as well, doing this Zoom is a little more strange, not seeing your faces and getting that social exchange. Uh, And have fun. Some of the videos and information I'm presenting uh, is rather humorous, so feel free to laugh. Good laugh is good at those times. Uh, I didn't share much of my personal information for why I do this work, and I want to pause here for a moment and talk just a little bit about what moved me to become a psychologist. Um, So I grew up in Israel. My uh, parents essentially were refugees that arrived there in 48. And um, I also experienced some uh, mental health issues in my family. So I have a sibling with a diagnosis. And then when I was uh, growing up, I was thinking of how the mainstream is not really supporting families. And this was early on, and I remember taking my first psychology class at age 14 and thinking to myself, this is what I want to do. This is kind of what I'm already doing, in a way, as the first translator for my family and, in a sense, a case manager, and then realizing at 18 that that's what I want to study. So since then, I've really cultivated a community approach to psychology, Uh, working in different settings, but really thinking of taking psychology into the world, not sitting in my office and doing it. And that's really been my uh, mission, my quest. And it's possible now more and more having uh, the work that I do in the Trauma Recovery Center. Uh, The other thing that's personal is that four years ago, in a magical way, I was able to become a, a mother, a parent. And this is where I'll plug the RFA, the resource families. It was through foster care. So there's 900 new cases per month, not per year, per month for the foster care system. And so that's a magical way to help children find homes. Now more than ever, as we're seeing a rise in child abuse and domestic violence uh, since COVID-19, there's a rise uh, anywhere from 20 to 80%, depending on the, the study or the um, hotline that you research, that report the, that that increase 20 to 80% is increasing calls and incidents of reporting child abuse. Since people are sheltering in place and access to the targets are, is more readily available. All right. So start with a quote. Health is a state of complete physical, mental, social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity from the World Health Organization. And I think this uh, helps us look at not lifespan, but health span. So starting to think about life as a health span, how healthy are you maintaining Yourself throughout the adversities of life, and as you're thinking about your social, emotional, physical, spiritual well being. So, what's happening with COVID 19 then? and especially for the workforce and health professionals. So nearly seven in 10 employees indicated in a survey that the coronavirus disease pandemic is the most stressful time of their entire professional career. Uh, Also aligned with stark increases in new prescriptions of antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti-insomnia medications. Uh, 88% of workers reported experiencing moderate to more extreme stress over the last four to six weeks. There's some interesting twists there, though. Um, The study that I read more recently regarding nurses, it seems that frontline nurses actually experienced less stress than nurses that are not frontline. And I try to make sense of that. And the disparity is about 14% versus 25% or so. Uh, The sense I made of it is something that I'll talk about a little bit later, uh, which is a stress response called tend and befriend stress respond, where you're actually reducing stress and cortisol is reducing in response to attending and nurturing another human being. So I think maybe the antidote to some of this is the tendon and befriend st- stress response, but this was an interesting finding. Um, what is unique about COVID-19 uh, for the public in general, but also specifically for health providers? So there's the chronicity of the stress and the looming unclear prognosis. When is this gonna end? Uh, are we ever gonna have a vaccine? Is the vaccine gonna be the answer? Um, how about, People who are specifically more immunocompromised, what does their health look like even after recovery and retaining or coming back to their full lung function? There's an imposition of unfamiliar public health measures that infringe on personal freedoms. This is the first time uh, in a long time since we've had shelter in place. And there is scrutiny of uh, people interacting and congregating in public places, public beaches are closed, which makes it even more difficult to um, achieve some relief from the stress. There's a pervasiveness of human life lost in a modern era. So we we had more losses with prior pandemics, but we think of our medical capacity and advances in medicine as more able to deal with this pandemic, where in fact, it's not. Uh, their unique economic hardships businesses are closing people are becoming unemployed uh, more disgruntledness in terms of um, ability to care for their family and more than ever there are health disparities which are similar but uh, also remarkably different uh, the last study i looked at at jama the john hopkins university there's a survey that indicated that African Americans' infections rate is threefold higher, and the death rate is sixfold higher than whites. Some counties, especially in the South, in, for example, Louisiana, blacks account for 70% of the deaths, but only 33% of the population. In Alabama, they account for 44% of the deaths and they are the 26% of the population. So this isn't different in terms of other um, health issues. Their health disparities exist. But to get to this fold is unconscionable. It's really uh, helping us evaluate ethically what's happening, not just in terms of access to care, but race determining home as well, so this is unique in health disparities. There's limited treatment options exist in limited testing resources, and limited supplies. I recall just last week, nurses coming to Harbor and saying that they can only access supplies, and that's a mask and gloves. If there is a, go- uh, a code gold, and a code gold is a, um, combative patient but by the time that they call a code gold there's already some exchange of fluid people are spitting shouting and the nurses are at the front line for that and i'm kind of targeting nurses because i've been particularly sensitive to their plight in the last year having worked with the variety of uh, sections of nursing at Harbor, but really other health professionals, our emergency department, the psychiatrists that work there, even our open community clinic and our trauma recovery center. uh, They're all experiencing the impact of more patients that are needy and stressed and are requesting assistance immediately. Uh, the other part that's unique is involvement in emotionally and ethically fraught resource allocation decisions. Uh, who gets a ventilator? Who gets the equipment? Uh, which person do we treat? And this is the first time, again, in a long time in history, that those ethical considerations are adding to the stress of health professionals. This is one of my favorite quotes by Viktor Frankl that which Uh, That which is to give light must endure burning. And this applies to the next segment I'm going to talk about, which is compassion fatigue and secondary stress disorder and burnout. So let's talk about stress for a moment. So stress could be good. The person who is about to bungee jump is feeling exhilaration. Uh, The person who is being chased by a hippo, uh, is sort of an acute stress, right? He needs to run as fast as possible. Hippos are the largest cause of death in some areas of F- Africa. And the nurse who looks pretty stressed is experiencing chronic stress and therefore more susceptible to burnout. And so the stress theories we know of, uh, we think of the four, the five Fs. Uh, I didn't include all of them. You all know them, fight light freeze. There's uh, fawn, fornicate, and so on. But really, the the one that's less studied is Shelley Taylor in 2000, who presented the tend and befriend. And I'll, I'll quote a few studies that relate to tend and befriend, and I'll show you a quick video that relates to it. So tend and befriend is this notion that you actually lower your stress and manage it by attending to either your young or another human being. It was initially attributed just to women or females, but uh, from what we know now, it's actually more widespread also for males. In the next slide, you'll see that. Um, And the studies that were conducted that are really interesting, One includes having a number of people sitting together and being told of a friend's cancer diagnosis. And one group was told to send good wishes and prayers to that loved one. And the other group was treatment as usual. And the interesting thing is that the group that was told to send wishes and prayers for their loved one actually showed a significant decrease in cortisol, the stress hormone, essentially. So that well-wishing actually works for reducing cortisol. Um, Another study, which is kind of interesting also, is they used a virtual huggable device instead of just a Zoom device. So you could hug the device while you're also engaging in Zoom, it was called the HugVie device. And people who use the HugVie device actually showed lowering of cortisol as tested by blood and saliva samples. So the the nurturing coming from physical touch was actually more pronounced for the group using the HugVie. So I wish we had a HugVie today. I would give you a, a virtual hug right now, but that's all we have. So I'm going to show you this interesting video. It's one of my favorites. You see the picture of this lioness, and she looks like she's eating this antelope. She's actually nurturing this antelope. Uh, This was a lioness that lost her cub and then lost her pride, her group, and actually took on a baby antelope. To nurture, so I'm going to show you just a clip of it, and this really demonstrates how tend and befriend is a way to is a way to lower stress. I'm not going to show you the entire film, but
3: 2001, the unthinkable happened. Word spread that a lioness in Kenya's Samboro Reserve had taken an antelope calf alive and was guarding it as her own. I couldn't believe my ears when I first heard about the adoption. I just thought, you know, that's absolute nonsense. Give it a few hours and and that lioness will definitely eat the calf. Saba Douglas Hamilton is wildlife conservationist for the Save the Elephant Trust. She rushed to the reserve to see for herself the lioness and a baby oryx antelope in one of the oddest animal bonds ever seen. And all of a sudden, there was this completely unheard of situation on our hands. Of a predator that had adopted its prey. She was named Kamagnac, meaning the Blessed One. Well, I think many people felt that this was, you know, had to be a message from God. Um, this was a miracle. This was, you know, the lion and the lamb laying down together. And Kamagnac really seemed to be infatuated by the baby. So they'd walk together and lie flop down under a tree and curl up next to each other Um, it was very moving to watch but what seemed like a touching story was actually a deadlock which kept a solitary lion from hunting and a starving calf from its milk
0: so that was interesting i won't tell you the grim end Uh, She didn't eat the antelope, but another line did. Well, I I just told you the grim end. But the the interesting thing is she never resorted to eating it, Uh, even after several weeks of near starvation for both her and the, the baby, let's call it that. I like that anthropomorphic description of this little antelope, is that they both were starving. And finally, they were so dehydrated that they made it down to the river and As soon as they did, the antelope was eaten by a large lion. But for the time that Kaminyak had this calf, she was able to go through her grief process and deal with her stress. And I imagine her cortisol levels were lowering. And this is to refute this notion that males are not involved in tend and befriend. I don't know if you can make sense of what you're seeing, But this is a baby bird that fell out of the nest. The mother bird is catching it with her beak, while the father bird, as as far as we can tell by his colors, he's the male, is actually supporting it from below, trying to bring it up to the nest. So tend and befriend exists for males too, certainly with humans. I love this picture. It was my newest Facebook discovery this morning. had to share it. All right, so stress related concepts that really pertain to the workforce and first responders, especially. We're going to talk about burnout, secondary trauma, second victim, vicarious trauma, and compassion fatigue. Burnout. Is the physical, emotional, and mental exhaustion caused by a long-term involvement in emotionally demanding situations? So this isn't a chronic state. Um, it's, the, it's not an acute state. It's a chronic state, right? So the stresses might be the superficial and the burnout is what has been happening for a while. Some of the things that contribute to it is uh, role overload, expectations of others that exceed one's ability to perform, Role conflict, for being forced to make a, a choice about which demand to satisfy, whether it's to attend a child's soccer game versus staying late to see a patient or complete paperwork. Um, and some of the role expectations of self and others really feed into the role conflict and the expectations of being perfect or having to answer some moral code for yourself because it's a value-driven um, value action Activity or because you think that performing is contingent on being accepted valued liked um, Becomes what causes the burnout So hospitals which burnout was reduced by 30% had a total of 6239 fewer infections for an annual cost saving of up to 68 million and how did they reduce burnout? Is with programs that target well-being. A little bit of what you're hearing in a short three-hour segment or six-hour with the two days, which is actually being conducted at Harbor uh, over many weeks and months as well. So, the three dimensions of burnout in healthcare, particularly, is uh, emotional exhaustion, feeling low personal accomplishment, depersonalization of the patient, and the things we spoke about before, along with professional isolation, working with a difficult population, long hours, limited resources, especially now with COVID 19, ambiguous success, more and more people are knocking on the door, needing care, and it's hard to attend to all of them, unreciprocated giving. People are per- particularly belligerent these days and disgruntled, and because they're afraid, failure to live up to one's own expectations, and then just the personality var- variables of uh, some that I noticed in anecdotally, but the research also shows the tendency to be perfectionistic, to be a savior, to try to help everyone, to stretch yourself thin. In order to meet everybody's needs, to feel like unless you make this one last call, one less referral, one less linkage, it's going to really jeopardize the person's health or well being, and you stay late to do it, which is how my team operates. But hopefully, we're going to learn how to do a little more well being as well. So, this is where I'm going to pause and ask you to, if you have a piece of paper or your journal, I'd like you to take it out and I'd like you to think about this is a work impact exercise. Think of your work in the last few weeks, even just the last week. And I'd like you to reflect on the most challenging moment. What made it so challenging for you? I'd like you to take about two minutes to reflect and write that down. Now, I'd like you to reflect on your most rewarding moment. And again, what made it so rewarding? I might add here, what were your feelings about that moment? And where did you feel it in your body compared to the challenging moment? Take a moment to write that down. Now, I'd like you to reflect for a moment how each of these moments relate to your strengths and values, how was the challenge related to your strength and value? And how was the rewarding moment related to your value and your strength? And I'll share with you that in my work with the nurses, and my work with students, my work even on the trauma team, that the most challenging moment is very much related to the most rewarding moment because both are embedded in a value system. The challenge often is not being able to meet the needs of the patient, the client, the consumer. And the most rewarding one is being able to meet it feeling like you're supporting or nurturing, tending, befriending another human being and how congruent it is with your value to be a useful, helpful, nurturing person. So those are peak moments for us. And the challenge in COVID-19 is that there's so few and far between Rewarding moments, when the need is so vast and the capacity is so low. Something to think about. So I'd like you to reflect on those exercises, the three, thinking about your work, challenging moment, rewarding moment, and how it they each reflect your strengths and values as a journal exercise. All right. Talk a little bit about healthcare and the dangers of healthcare. So, some of these slides, the next three, are taken from our Healers Helping Healers, which is a program at Harbor UCLA where, for physicians or healthcare professionals or really anybody, nurses, even uh, people who clean the operating room. We experience an adverse event, and an adverse event is any um, experience traumatic response to an adversity. It could be a particularly heinous stabbing or uh, someone being attacked or a death, that there is a team that goes out and actually sits with the person and does either a one-on-one reflection, support, containment... Um, sharing, and or it could be a group setting. So this is not a debriefing session per se, uh, but more of a supportive environment that offers a chance for affective disclosure, expression, and then support. Uh, We're not the innovators of this. It started at LSE, USC before. We borrowed the paradigm from them and are using it. And the reason it's so necessary is because healthcare is so dangerous. So, so these slides reflect the errors that basically comprise healthcare and the adverse events that are so rampant. So based on the Institute of Medicine report, at least 44,000 and possibly as high as 98,000 die in the US annually due to medical errors. So unnecessary deaths. Each year, at least 210,000 patients, possibly more than 400,000, die related to preventable harm in hospitals, based on James in 2013, Journal of Patient Safety. So a hospital could be a dangerous place to go, and more so than ever now in COVID, it's a dangerous place to go, but some of it's attributed to human error, and We think of human error as devoid of malice. So people who perform operations and have people die because of uh, some faulty judgment or error actually bear the stress that relates to making such an error and have that on their conscience, right? So this is another sobering fact. Those errors lead to... Um, such a dismay and depression and suicidality that we lose a doctor a day to death by suicide in the U.S., which accounts for three to hundred to four hundred physicians per year, which is really three to four medical school classes a year. It's the top occupation risk for death by suicide, physicians. This is compared to other professions. Uh, It's the highest. The only other profession that hasn't been studied are nurses. And I did the work myself to look at nurses and uh, looked at one recent study in 2019 by Mariam Yazidi, who wrote that nurses are 23% more likely to complete suicide than the rest of women. In the U.S., 23% more likely to complete suicide, uh, partly because they know how to complete a suicide and they have access to means that are more lethal. But uh, how does it compare when we look at doctors' suicides? And this is where it hasn't been compared side by side. My projection is nurse suicides are really high. And all health providers, really, the inability to care to the degree that we wish to care for um, patients makes it that challenging situation that is hard to contend with. So here are the rest of the profession, just to give us an idea. Physicians, 300 to 400 per year in 2015 and 2016. Educators, 63 per year. Police officers, even 108. We used to think that's a really a high-risk, high-suicide profession, but compared to physicians, it's less than half. Firefighters, and then even in the military, 37, 41. Nurses is a question mark until the Azidi study that I just added here, and it's not per 100,000, but it's definitely higher than the rest of the uh, female population in the U.S., So second victim is basically our healthcare providers who are involved in an unanticipated adverse patient event in a medical error, patient related injury become victimized in the sense that the provider is traumatized by the event. And it's, it's again, rather common. The picture you're seeing is uh, actually a picture of a physician after exiting the OR and losing a patient. And, um, as you see him, he's cowered in the corner on the bridge. I think this is—I um, think this is Cedar Sinai, if I'm not mistaken—and a news reporter took that picture. And having to go on his own out there to process his grief and process his own stress reaction, his traumatic reaction to this event, is telling. And this is how physicians are trained to do it: uh, be silent, go deal with it on your own. I think this picture speaks a thousand words. So this is also a vicarious trauma. So secondary trauma is a form of vicarious trauma. It's the process through which therapist's inner experience is negatively transformed through empathic engagement with the client's traumatic material. McCann is someone who did a lot of work with vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue as it says here it's used synonymously, I kind of think of um, vicarious trauma as a subset of compassion fatigue and compassion fatigue is the umbrella and underneath it is burnout and vicarious trauma and secondary stress and all that lead to the chronicity of compassion fatigue that exists again with healthcare workers and mental healthcare workers. A quote by Eric Fromm, one cannot be deeply responsive to the world without being saddened very often. And this is the interesting research is the people who are particularly empathic are the ones that have the most compassion fatigue. Uh, People who have empathy overload. uh, Maybe we call them empaths. Um, and uh, are not able to separate or unmirror is sort of a way to think about it, is th- are more susceptible to compassion fatigue. And this is where talking about to mirror neurons in a little bit will explain that a little bit more. So compassion fatigue is characterized by gradual lessening of compassion over time resulting from a combination of burnout, secondary traumatic stress related to vicarious traumatization, from repeated exposure. So this is the umbrella term again that I was referring to. And this is Figley's um, compassion burnout scale. And there's 13 sections to it that you answer. But this this... Uh, scale basically talks about the common symptoms of compassion fatigue. I won't pause here very long. Instead, I'll talk about phases of compassion fatigue. And right after this, I'll take some questions. I know we're past the 45-minute mark. Uh, So there's the zealot phase, irritability phase, withdrawal phase, zombie phase, and then pathology and victimization versus maturation and renewal the zealot phase is this committed, driven, involved, available, trying to solve problem, go the extra mile, uh, volunteering without being asked. The picture is Nick, you, unit and a nurse holding a newborn, a preemie, preemie's hand. Uh, and really being there after hours, uh, t- again, taking the last call, doing the last adjustment for a client just so they're comfortable Uh, bringing the last drink for the night shift before they go. Uh, That's the zealot phase. And some function like that, it's not a phase, it's a way of being. But in the compassion fatigue, it's a phase. If it's not then um, replenished for oneself through self-care. The irritability phase. Beginning to cut corners, avoiding clients and patients, using humor inappropriately, oversights, mistakes, lapses of concentration, distancing self from others and coworkers. So overall irritability that spills over to home, and this is, I think, where we're seeing the large increases in child abuse, domestic violences. Uh, people are bringing the irritability home and it's not just home uh, healthcare workers it's all around but it's also happening for people who are stretched thin in the workforce with healthcare withdrawal phase loss of enthusiasm the clients become irritating complaining about work tired all the time trying to avoid negative emotions which we'll see in a moment when we talk about positive emotions. It's not healthy to do that. It's it's better to be integrated than avoidant of negative emotions. And then we go to the zombie phase. Uh, Hopelessness turning to rage. Others seem incompetent, including ourselves. So this is important. Sometimes our own sense of incompetence translates to projection towards others, Um, beginning beginning to feel indifferent in relation to clients, having limited patience, curtailed sense of humor, limited time for fun, the zombie phase. So this can then come to uh, almost a, a standstill with needing to decide whether you leave the profession, you're overwhelmed and leave Or that you notice the way you're being impacted and you take action steps to build resiliency and you attend to well-being. You request those, we call them H3 uh, healers, helping healer sessions. Um, I just requested one myself uh, about a week ago over something adverse that happened to me. And I remember struggling with my own sense of Pride. Should I ask for an H three? Is it reasonable? I'm the one who's giving H threes around the hospital. How can I pause and ask for one? But I did. It was important, and it was very rewarding to receive it, um, and very important for me to say I need it. You know, and it was just that moment that I needed it, and it helped in immense ways. So. I think as healers we sometimes forget that asking for help and asking for healing is allowed. And I'm going to end with this caricature, what seems to be the problem. I feel the way you look. And I'm going to take some questions from chat at this point, if there are any. We have a
2: question from Patrick. If individuals that experience life as an empath, can we as clinicians find a way to be supportive and recognize each other for elevated possibility to experience compassion
0: fatigue? Wow, that's a great question. So if we are recognizing ourselves or recognizing others as empaths, uh, can we ask for support or how do we ask the best way to support oneself. Um, So I'm going to talk a little bit about this concept of unmirroring and confluency in a sense. Yes, there are ways to ask for that. A lot of self-care does relate to what are you doing with the secondary trauma at the end of your day. I tend to be a rather confluent person and I'm going to I warned you, I share lots of personal information. So here's one. In 2008, I went to a person's bedside. I'm not typically a psychologist that goes to bedsides because of this. I have a terrible vasovagal response to blood. So if I see blood, I faint. So vasovagal response is another way of saying that I'm a wuss, essentially. Yeah, so I fainted. I saw the person's, uh, the person was, had an amputated limb. I didn't actually see the blood or anything, but she was in a halo, this contraption that stabilizes her spine. There was just a little bit of blood here. But what really shocked me were her eyes. They were screaming without sound, her eyes and her face. If you can picture agony and fear, all trapped in an expression. That's what it looked like to me. Now I have to shake my lens right now because I could be retriggered. triggered to that. Uh, but I left her room in a hurry. I went to the elevator and I passed out. I fainted. I fell back and hit my head, my C2, C3. I had a spinal cord injury. And part of the reason that happened is because I didn't know to gauge my confluence and my empathy, I was, my mirror neurons were firing exactly the same way hers were, causing a vasovagal response. I don't know how else to say it, a, f- a faint response. Um, so, actual injury from empathy that can happen. And people who are empathic, the way to release that is the self care isn't compartmentalizing. I noticed because you kind of run out of compartments, you know, you can only compartmentalize so much and then there's no more places to shove traumatic experiences. Really the way to unmirror is to, I'll show you a number of exercises that can help, but is to remove yourself energetically. So uh, people who do energy psychology know about, um, movement that can release confluence, um, being able to separate from the actual thought trigger, the emotion trigger without compartmentalizing, to make meaning of it and then integrate and be able to move on. So I hope that answered a little bit of the question, but when we come back to mirror neurons, it might be answered more fully as well. Patrick, thank you. And here we are with mirror neurons as promised. So, mirror neurons are uh, mirror fire both as we experience, as we encounter others' experiences. This is based on the work of Lacoboni from, I believe, UCLA. Yeah, UCLA. That's who was first best known. But I think also the credit goes to uh, Ramachandran, another um, another neuroscientist, professor of neuroscience at the University of, of San Diego that conducted earlier research on mirror neurons, and uh, he called them the basis of civilization in his TED talk. Uh, So mirror neurons help us really get the other person, postural mirroring, emotional mirroring, behavioral mirroring, there's even now spiritual mirroring. And uh, being able to, our neurons fire simultaneously so that their experience is known. Uh, There's some studies that show that autism is a failure in correct firing of mirror neurons, if you believe that study. So mirroring can be helpful, can also become burdensome, as Patrick noted with empaths. People with high tendency for empathy are more likely to burn out. Uh, the professional impacts are at risk, and must learn how to be self-aware, unmirror regularly, and build resilience. So I noted some uh, ideas for energetically unmirroring, and so movement, shaking. Uh, when we think of the animal kingdom, after an animal experiences either vicarious or direct trauma, you notice that they pant and they shake that shaking behavior. Uh, I was actually doing it a little bit earlier in the studio. I was shimmying kind of from a belly dance perspective, but I was a little nervous before this. That's what I was doing. You can ask Charles. She was, I was doing that. Um, so this sort of, um, releasing tension because of worry about someone else is a way that we can release energetically. The other is what's called resourcing, like from somatic experiencing, a sort of physical resourcing where mammals and so touch goes a long way, as we know from the Hug V uh, study. Right? So, doing uh, I don't know if you could see me, but doing this sort of self hug, uh, Peter Levine talks about that. So, holding one shoulder and one's ribcage area and actually providing some um some pressure to feel the sort of the grounding that comes from physical touch. There's hand on heart from Christine Neff and self-compassion. So these are resourcing that are physical. There's visual resourcing, there's uh, smell like actually smelling things that are pleasant could be ways to resource and basically unmirror. Um some, some other trauma-informed modalities talk about mapping and so on. Um, the other way is imagery with people we care about. So I routinely bring up my father when I'm experiencing traumatic events. My father has been dead for 15 years now. But when I pause and I think of something adverse that just happened, I bring his face, I'm doing it now, uh, I see his eyes. I see the tenderness that exists there. I notice his expression. Uh, I hear words that he might say. I'm not having auditory hallucinations. I'm just hearing the words that he used to tell me. Um, there's, a, there's a procedure called an inner support committee because we have an inner critic. And the antidote to an inner critic is an inner support committee. And so it's inviting people who are in your committee who are non judgmental and have been in your life. And so that exercise we'll learn a little bit about uh, on Thursday. We'll actually do it together. But my father is a prominent person in my committee. And so that's my resourcing and a way to unmirror from an adverse event. Okay. So this is another kind of mirroring. <laughs> I love that picture. It's a, I think it's a baboon copying humans with cell phones. I had to add that. So the, the iceberg of compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, secondary stress is the tip. Being well is the bottom so the bottom is your awareness of your wellness and your your ongoing practice right that's what's going to restore equilibrium and by the time you're thirsty you are already dehydrated applies to acknowledging stresses that cause compassion fatigue so by the time you are feeling compassion fatigue you're already emotionally dehydrated spiritually dehydrated socially dehydrated the trick is to ask for that h3 ask for that uh, support session find a person you can debrief with at the end of the day even if it's just to hear voice nothing more Uh, we do that routinely uh, with our team so at the end of a work day We There's different people who call a different person, but there's people who call me routinely for uh, debriefing and for checking out, we call it. But really, it's that social contact that actually helps lower the stress response, even in an endocrine level system, reducing the cortisol by the end of the day so that we don't get dehydrated as professionals. So why are we so miserable at this? Healthcare professionals are miserable at this. Less doctor visits for themselves. Self-prescribed drugs will not go to a doctor, will self-prescribe it, or call another colleague and say, can you write me a prescription? Especially for antidepressants. Uh, perceived stigma around seeking help or support, willing to work when sick, denial and avoidance and, as a coping strategy. Um yeah and and also even protecting the privacy of colleagues when there is a adverse event and then a coping strategy that's maladaptive like using drugs i remember a study of asking graduate students if a colleague was drinking routinely and providing therapy if they would report it to a supervisor. And 50 to 75% said they wouldn't because of social desirability reasons, protecting the privacy of a colleague, but keeping the secret of maladaptive functioning and um, basically suffering in the workplace as a secret and not a good secret to keep because the... The reverse is providing some help and some nurturance that's so sorely needed. So here's a question. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger or not? True or false? Right? And I can't hear you answering, obviously. But what makes you uh, stronger is being able to integrate an adverse event, make meaning of it talk about it, get support about it, around it, and be able to come to a place of acceptance and potentially after a grief process, after an emotionally emotive um, component, then you can blossom like the tree on, to me, the right side. And if you don't do that, It does kill you over time. So that's the trick with trauma and with compassion fatigue and secondary adverse events is being able to get the support and integrate in order to move on. All right, so this is where I'm going to tell a little story. This is actually my child, Anaya, just turned four, uh, so the personal story is, I remember coming home after a long trip. I was in New York doing my DBT intensive training with Charlie Swenson. And I came home and there she was. And I was thinking, I'm going to prepare this great adventure for us. We're going to go to the beach. We're going to have a really amazing day. And I, the beach was her favorite thing. She was about Three at that time. She's two in this picture. And I told her, honey, we're going to go to the beach. Isn't that great? And she was so excited. And uh, I told her in just a few hours, and I set out to make a picnic for us. And so I was cooking in the kitchen. And now the hour was becoming two because I'm a little bit of a perfectionistic. And dragging a 60 pound dog and a three year old child to the beach is not as easy as it sounds. So here I am in the kitchen now, three hours go by and I'm finally ready. I get the picnic basket into the car and I'm saying, honey, and she's sitting on the curb just waiting for me because she wanted to enjoy some sunshine. And I say, honey, we're ready. Let's go. She's not moving. So I say, come on, we can make it to the beach. It's only like two or three o'clock. We could still make it. She's still not moving. And so I come and sit next to her, and as uh, she's looking at the ants and poking at them, and now there's like a roly-poly, she she calls it, those little worms that curl up. And she's telling me about the roly-poly, and I'm thinking the beach, and I'm thinking the picnic that's melting in the sun in the car, and then I just give in. And we sit on that step right outside our house, no beach. And we look at roly-polies, and we look at butterflies, and now it's five o'clock. And the whole reason for the picnic was to spend time with my daughter, right? So I did. So the most important thing is to remember what is important. What's most important is the moment. And we'll talk a little bit more about mindfulness tomorrow, I mean, Thursday, Thursday we talk about mindfulness, just spending the time in the present moment and not rushing ahead is sometimes also the antidote to stress. Because I I stressed out in the kitchen trying to prepare a picnic where all my little girl wanted is for her mama to sit right by her and not move for a few minutes. So by five o'clock, we went to the beach. We were able to see the sunset. We were able to still eat what didn't melt of our picnic and that was what was most important. So, learning to do that routinely is part of well being. And now, this brings us to positive psychology and the study of conditions, processes, and characteristics that contribute to optimal functioning. So, a brief history lesson that takes us down the path of positive psychology. So before World War II, psychology had better balance. We were treating mental illness, but we were also nurturing genius and talent. We studied normal life and happiness. We talked and studied the importance of relationships and group membership and leadership styles. So there was a balance between pathology and symptom and not just normalcy, but thriving, essentially. What happened after the war is that we started focusing on treatments for mental illness. The GIs coming home with combat fatigue or um, uh, what's now called PTSD, right? Or shell shock, it used to be called in VA hospitals. Uh, that's what we were treating. That's what our attention was turning to. Money went towards developing new treatment. And in 1955, there was introduction of drugs for the treatment of depression and psychosis. So there is a flip almost to looking at mental illness, looking at symptoms, looking at pathology, and trying to find ways to resolve it or to treat it Uh, This also happened in schools after the war. There was more focus on helping children with developmental disabilities. Gifted programs were encouraged but not funded. So funding were cut from gifted programs and mainly going to uh, focusing on students with developmental disabilities. Exceptional children on both ends of the spectrum really um, in some ways were neglected, but um, again, more focus on symptoms. So in the past, before that, there was nurturing of genius and talents as well, and that was now missing from education. So the focus went from positive psychology, which studied flourishing, well-being, strengths, and meaning, to repair, healing, uh, thinking about pathology and illness, and trying to figure out how to solve it, right? So positive psychology, even now, and and especially lately with um, more research being done positive, like 35% more research done in positive psychology than any other time in our history. There's so many more books by Martin Seligman, Flourishing, The Happiness on... um, positive emotions, on resilience, on grit, Um, Angela Duckworthy with grit. There's so much more being produced by the field in a positive direction. And it's prime time also given our current era in COVID that we start borrowing from that, right? And using it. So studying the protective factors that positive psychology has to offers as well as the risk factors is really crucial. And also thinking about positive emotions and traits that could be used to combat problems, but not forgetting the underbelly, the underbelly or negative emotions. It could also be used. And there are studies that uh, show that being able to balance both negative and positive is actually better than just focusing on positive, which we'll talk about. So positive psychology is positive education, health, assessment, psychotherapy, and organizations. This is important. An organization has its own, um, it's its own, I guess, psyche in a way. It's, It's its own organism that either thrives or malfunctions, right? So there's traumatized organizations where not just the people are, but the collective is. And so the focus on all of those, um, these are the different researchers, Keyes, Hubbard, Diner, Seligman, um, Laborski is here, Mihaly, which we'll be talking about tomorrow, will also be here. So that's what positive psychology is. What it isn't, It's not new. It's been around for a long time. It's not a standalone treatment for mental disorders. You can't treat someone fully with just positive psychology. But you can certainly enhance life. You can nurture. You can attribute to happiness and flourishing and resilience using the ideas from positive psychology. It's not a replacement for traditional approaches. And it's certainly not a Pollyanna, just think positively approach. So, there's a bit of a humorous uh, clip that I'm going to show you. There is one or two words that are profanities, the F words that are used, but I, I thought I'll use it anyway. It's for a drug called Despondex, and I won't say more, I'll just show you. <laughs>
4: The first-ever prescription depressant hit the shelves today. Approved by the FDA last month, despondex is intended as a treatment for the approximately 20 million Americans who are insufferably cheery. Tests prove the drug is effective at reducing a range of symptoms, from squealing loudly when a friend calls to use of the phrase cool beans and excessive hugging. Dr. Alman Way calls the drug a huge step forward in the battle against exuberance.
3: If you're in a good mood
2: every so often, well that's fine, that's normal. This is for those that have a
5: persistent positive outlook on life.
4: Eva Henry of New Haven, Connecticut, began participating in a clinical trial of Dyspondex six weeks ago.
5: I was always telling people how cute their outfits were and bringing them little gifts. I'd beam at anyone who made eye contact with me. I didn't realize life didn't have to be like that.
4: Eva said she never knew how her annoyingly chipper attitude was affecting those around her.
5: Over and over again, I'd ask Jeff to ride his bike down to the botanical garden with mm-hmm. me. No matter how many times, he said no. And she was
3: always smiling. Mm-hmm but I didn't know what to do to help him.
5: I used to think, why am I the only one trying to set up single friends with each other? And now I realize it. I I was sick. I needed treatment.
4: Eva says the drug may have saved their marriage. Now Jeff and I can just waste a night sitting
5: on the couch watching a TV show neither of us enjoy, like a regular couple.
4: Not everyone is convinced that despondex is the cure-all for perkiness, however. In this week's Time magazine, Michael Pelosik of UCLA argues that many patients get similar results from natural remedies, something as simple as a diet of corn syrup and white bread and a total lack of exercise. But Dr. Wei disagrees.
2: We have to erase the stigma attached with getting chirpy people help, real medical help. I mean, do you know what it's like to be around these people? It's pretty fucking annoying.
4: Doctors estimate the new drug could reduce the number of costume or theme parties in the U.S. by up to 40%. Okay,
0: the spondex for the treatment of the cheery people. So yeah, so positive psychology is not just think positively and uh, not a Pollyanna approach at all. I hope that didn't offend anyone. The one effort word that snuck in there. Uh, so here's a caricature. Uh, Hi, the bluebird of happiness retired. I'm the bluebird of things could be worse, uh, and kind of reflects when we stopped l- learning or studying happiness, and when we started again. Right? Positive psychology is the one of the studies is happiness. So what happens when our brain is wired to think of dangers? And it is innately, right? There, the, the old way of thinking of our brain is that we're born with the neurons and they develop up to a certain age and then neuroplasticity stops and our brains are set. And what we know from the work of Fordyce dice. And the pioneering work around neuroplasticity is that there is actually a way to change your brain, right? To rewire it, Uh, hardwiring happiness is sort of the way that uh, Fordyce thought of it. There's probably someone before Fordyce that thought about neuroplasticity, but in relation to uh, happiness, it was Fordyce. So the brain is able to rewire itself as a result of experience, and that's what's called neuroplasticity. So there's this interesting study in London with uh, cab drivers, and they looked at cab drivers who were on the job for a while and learned all the streets. At that time, this was like the 80s there was no gps and people were using maps but it was impossible to thrive as a cab driver needing to pull up a map and the london streets are particularly difficult but what they noticed is with these cab drivers is the areas of the brain that were responsible for visual special spatial reasoning were actually denser so the pathways in the brain were set in a certain way where the neural pathways were following a certain groove and that became the dense part of the brain. So what does that tell us? That the way we fire, we wire, right? So our firing is our wiring. And so our brain goes on autopilot. It's wired to conserve energy and resources, look for patterns and automate them, look for danger and figure out how to avert it, how to avoid it. Our behaviors, emotional memories, physical reactions become part of our subconscious brain maps, which are automatic and not easy to change. Now, it sounds like I'm saying two opposite things. Neuroplasticity is possible and our neural pathways are kind of set and dense. Both are true. Yes, neuroplasticity is possible, but the only way to change the groove or to change the density is by choosing different pathways. And if we don't, our brain on autopilot will choose it for us. So if we are wiring misery, we'll stay miserable. Our denser portions of our brain, our thought patterns for misery will be hardwired. Okay. I'm going to, yeah. So if you don't mindfully direct the changes in your brain, something or someone will accidentally do it for you. So here's a short clip that shows us what, basically what neuroplasticity is all about. And we're going to show it to you and then we'll discuss that some more.
5: Not so long ago, many scientists believed that the brain did not change after childhood, that it was hardwired and fixed by the time we became adults. But recent advances in only the last decade now tell us that this is simply not true. The brain can and does change throughout our lives. It is adaptable, like plastic, hence neuroscientists call this neuroplasticity. How does neuroplasticity work? If you think of your brain as a dynamic, connected power grid, there are billions of pathways or roads lighting up every time you think, feel or do something. Some of these roads are well-traveled. These are our habits, our established ways of thinking, feeling and doing. Every time we think in a certain way, practice a particular task or feel a specific emotion, we strengthen this road it becomes easier for our brains to travel this pathway. Say we think about something differently, learn a new task or choose a different emotion. We start carving out a new road. If we keep travelling that road, our brains begin to use this pathway more and this new way of thinking, feeling or doing becomes second nature. The old pathway gets used less and less and weakens. This process of rewiring your brain by forming new connections and weakening old ones is neuroplasticity in action. The good news is that we all have the ability to learn and change by rewiring our brains. If you have ever changed a bad habit or thought about something differently, you have carved a new pathway in your brain and experienced neuroplasticity firsthand. With repeated and directed attention towards your desired change, you can rewire your brain.
0: All right. I hope that made it a little bit more clear than I did. And I just love her accent. So if I could just emulate it, it would be great, but I can't. So the brain negativity bias. uh, So this is the neuroplasticity that we are hoping to change, right? the rewiring. So our brain has a built-in evolutionary negativity bias, and it's attuning and scanning for threats, uncertainty, social isolation, and unfairness. So we go around life with this negativity bias, and it's really a four to one ratio. So four negative thoughts for one positive thought. Okay, so that's the typical negativity bias. So it doesn't sound like that remarkable, four to one, maybe seems reasonable. But how long do we linger on the four negative? How often are we um, basically immersed in the negative, sort of perpetually thinking about the negative, stuck in it, right? So if the four thoughts are 10 hours and the one positive thought is a minute, then the negativity bias isn't just by sheer number but it's the the intensity, the amount of time spent. And that's the problem because the one negative thought could actually be informative, uh, balanced and integrated. But the four that are lasting most of our waking hours creates this negativity bias. And that's what the wiring is of our brain. And so this is another time for a personal story, I think it's about time. And then we'll go on a break. Uh, So for me negativity bias are phobias in a way that's how i think about them and two things that i was phobic about one is public speaking and so i kind of got over it as you can tell the other is that i was really phobic about sharks by the way public speaking is the number one phobia sharks i don't know about that but Being afraid of sharks is is not a very feasible phobia because unless you dive You're not going to encounter them that often and as we know you're more likely to be killed by Mosquito than a shark Ultimately, but for me it was a phobia to the degree. Okay. I'm gonna confess some pretty silly things here Um, I would be in a river and think there has to be some fresh water sharks that exists somewhere. We just don't know they're mutants and they can come up and eat me up. And so even in a river, I would be afraid of sharks. So much so that I decided to rewire my brain. Once I learned about this, I thought, I'm gonna rewire my brain to get away from those shark things, shark phobia thing. And so what did I do? I took up scuba diving. So here I am with a large turtle Turtle doesn't make me very afraid. I mean, being underwater felt a little bit more calming than being on the surface and being in a surprise way attacked by sharks. But still, I could tell you that I'm a little nervous. This is not my first dive, obviously. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable with this turtle. And then I thought, well, this doesn't really resolve my phobia. Um, So then here I am with an octopus. This is before I knew that an octopus actually has a beak that comes out. And that's how it eats its its prey. It could actually shatter a lobster shell and eat the inside. Very easily could have shattered the bones of my hand. But from the colors, you could see that he's rather calm. This is also not my first dive. And then I thought, okay, this, this still doesn't resolve my shark phobia. So then this is the last one. And what you're seeing are sharks, and they're not superimposed. I'm actually diving with them. These are bull sharks. They're not the friendly kind to humans. This is my brave friend at the time. I don't know if he's on our Zoom right now, my friend Steve. But uh, yeah, we went to, I wanna say Cayman Islands. I'm pretty sure this is where it is. And we dove with bull sharks. And this was not in a cage, this was out in the open. I know it seems like a crazy touristy thing to do. Uh, so you go to the bottom and you stay still. They tell you not to move at all. And then they feed them at the top. But eventually the food drops to the bottom. And so they're right next to you. As you notice, the, the two couple on the right side, the shark couple on the right, not us as a couple, but they're there watching the camera too, kind of like photobombing. And then the one above, they're right next to us. It's not really that distant. Well, that got me over my shark phobia. And so this was my rewiring effort for my disdain for being in the water, being especially on the top. But now scuba diving is something I do regularly. I really rewired my brain in a big way. All right. So that's my personal part of what rewiring can actually, the extent it could go to. And here we are at well-being and happiness. Uh, Happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence by Aristotle or Charlie Brown. Happiness is when a dog runs to you rather than anyone else. Whichever quote seems to resonate for you more. I like the dog one. So why do we study happiness? It improves well-being for everyone. You understand an optimal best functioning uh, has a positive affect and feeling is more common than negative one intrinsically when we're born. Positive emotions protect against mental and physical health problems. And optimistic people perform better. Uh, not only do they perform better, they actually live healthier and uh, longer. They have a longer health span, not just life's span. Okay. So the three pillars of positive psychology in terms of what determines ability to be happy, genetics, social circumstance, and the self, the experiences of the self... And for adults who can increase our happiness with interventions and practice, what's under our control is 40%, genetics is 50, and circumstances 10. So there are people who are born happy and genetically predisposed to happiness. I'll share a study that actually looks at a site in our DNA that predisposes us to happiness. But what is under our control is 40%. So there was a study done where a person was told they have cancer and a person won the lottery. And the people with sort of the base happiness gene, how long did it take them to come back to feeling equilibrium from, I'm sorry, it wasn't cancer, it was paralysis being paralyzed versus winning the lottery? You can't answer, of course, because it's a chat. But it took a year. And so for the people who had that base happiness, it took a year to acclimate from paralysis and a year to acclimate from winning the lottery. It's sort of the equilibrium happiness was the same compared to others right? So the genetic is really huge, but then 40%, almost as huge as what's under our control. And how much do you bring happiness to the workplace? And how do you celebrate life is the way to think about it. So now I'm going to show you one person's way of bringing happiness to the workplace. This is Tony Atkins it's just a three minute video. Tony Atkins actually came to Harbor UCLA last year when I called him. Uh, He's known, he's a PA who is known as the dancing doctor. He dances with uh, patients and actually the results from studies that were conducted based on his interventions is that patients that he sees and dances with actually fare better medically And in terms of their stress level, in terms of pre-operation stressor and how much, you know, again, the cortisol is rising and and then what the outcomes are. And so this is a video of him with some of his patients. Again, he came to Harbor UCLA and talked to our nurses and then my daughter was there. He was dancing with her. He's truly a a child whisperer in a way.
3: Keep it positive, you know how we do Big up, big up, big up to this crew From day one till it's done, do or die, me and you Big up, big up, big up to this crew Yeah, we like to keep it positive, you know how we do Big up, big up, big up to this crew Got props non-stop and mad love for you Rising up like the moon, elevating the mood Uplifting attitudes, cause that's what we used to do And I don't know about you, but there's enough negativity Going around with plenty room to improve Yeah, sometimes we collide With stress and negativity We always let it slide. It's an elevated vibe, so fly We touch the sky every time we ride Big up, big up, big up To this crew here We like to keep it positive You know how we do Big up, big up, big up To this crew From day one till it's done Do or die, me and you You find you're gonna see the same sucker MCs on the sidelines in the fourth quarter when it's due or die time. That's when this crew is inclined to go prime time from day one straight till it's done. But you all know full well that we only just begun. Yeah. We stick together one for all, all for one. one. When it gets heavy, no, we don't come wrong. Crazy thinking about the places that we've been. Now I could tell you stories that'll make your head spin. But like I said, straight thick or thin. There's so many memories. Let's jump, do a die, me and you. Big up, big up, big up to this crew. Yeah, we like to keep it positive. You know how we do. Big up, big up, big up to this crew. Got props nonstop and mad love
4: for you. I'm a smiley face, not even in the race. Don't even try anymore to come in last place. Cause I'ma take my time, rendered in my mind. Gonna bury me some treasure and make it hard to find, y'all. Fill up my suitcase with candy and fruitcake. Bring it to the party on the beach down out the lake. We all jump in, splash around in Shines the sun to the dog, with the sun of the dawn with
3: the sun of the dawn <laughs>
0: All right, so on that note, we're going to pick up where we left off with a little bit more on genetics. Uh, so recent neuroscience researchers have demonstrated that there's a genetic variation in the brain that makes some people inherently less anxious. So this is like the 50% we were talking about. Um, and they're not only are less anxious, more able to forget fearful or unpleasant experiences. It's a genetic mutation that produces higher level of anandamide the so-called bliss molecule. It's our own natural marijuana, essentially. So the bliss molecule also dubbed the love hormone. Um, well, oxytocin is uh, the love hormone and anandamide, which is the bliss molecule molecule, Uh, really both have a role in activating cannabinoid receptors in the brain cells to heighten motivation and happiness. And so there is this happiness set point that is rather genetic. But again, 40% uh, of that could be influenced by rewiring experience and then intentional attunement to uh, what causes and produces happiness in our life as well. So that's the good news. So positive psychology, we're coming back to the vision of the PERMA model, just to remind us where we are, pleasant life. And so pleasant life, positive emotion, and feeling well, right? Um, So we're coming back to positive emotion in a minute. A little more on happiness. Uh, Does happiness buy happiness? I'm sorry, does money buy happiness or does happiness buy money? So caricature money can't buy happiness but it pays for a lot of antidepressants at least this is an interesting study from 56 to 98 Uh, the only problem with it is only goes up to 20,000 and so back in 1998 maybe 20,000 was a lot but there if you look at the um, x-axis and the y-axis and then you look at the curve for personal income that rose from 8,000 to 20,000 from 56 to 98 average and look at the percentage very happy it stayed the same so people did not fluctuate very much because of money attainment i wonder if they put a million there it would change but this was at least up to that amount does happiness make you smarter more creative and healthier let's look at that research so So they did this study, it's kind of a silly study, but uh, they asked 44 doctors to diagnose a difficult case. One group got a bag of candy, the other group got uh, positive statements about medicine, and the last group was a control group. I think they just read something. Which group do you think actually was able to diagnose more precisely? This is where I don't get to hear you, but I will tell you. The first group that got the bag of candy, those doctors with candies, were the more precise. And so if candy can make you happier, this sort of is an implication for happiness, potentially. Okay. Maybe not so compelling. But let's look at the other, the nun study. This is a 2001 Danner, Snowden, and Friesen study. It's pretty famous. It was conducted in Italy. As far as I remember. It's a longitudinal study of Catholic sisters. And uh, the reason they studied nuns is because it really controls for the environment. They all are in the same monastery and have a pretty similar life. Um, so autobiographical accounts of about 180 older nuns in their youth between ages 18 to 32 were coded in terms of emotional content, positive, negative, or neutral. And they compared the uppermost positive with the least positive. So 90% of the most positive nuns are still alive at 85 or at 2001 were alive. Only 34 of the least positive were alive at 85. 54% of the most positive were still going at 94. And only 11% of the least positive were alive at 94. So apparently happiness and however they measured out of different measures of happiness in terms of scales and uh, Life activation and so on. I said, so sort of the generativity idea of Erikson that was happening with these nuns that were happy actually increased longevity. So positive feelings were uh, written in daily journals. And that also predicted longevity. So the the nuns were also instructed to, we'll do that in a minute, do the happiness journal or gratitude journal. And that predicted longevity as well. Other studies support the link between happiness and good health. So they studied uh, women with history of um, cardiac disease and heart attacks. And they looked at the uppermost and lowermost in the scale of optimism, so top versus bottom quartile. The pessimists uh, actually had more CHD, so more incidence of cardio health disease that included things like, um, uh, let's see, myocardial infraction, angina, Angioplasty, coronary artery bypass surgery, the need for that. Um, also, CHD, cardiovascular disease, or cancer related. So, the uppermost uh, quartile of optimists compared to pessimists that were adjusted for age, okay, 43 versus 60. The total mortality was vastly different, 46 versus 63. The most cynical and hostile women, the top versus the bottom quartile, had higher rates of CHD and total mortality rate that was much higher. The optimists had lower hazard of CHD and lower mortality rate. So optimism and cynical hostility are independently associated with important health outcomes. Both, this was a study with both uh, African-American and white women, and it was uh, the study showed the same results for both. So studies that really look at changing attitudes and increasing optimism can have huge implications for health issues that we face. And the link in terms of the theory, why is that so? So the link is between increased cortisol inflammation and poor health. So if you're less stressed, your cortisol levels are lower, uh, not just like trauma induced, chronically uh, lowered cortisol that's just not uh, generating because you're used to numbing from trauma, but more because you're living a healthier life, there is a lower inflammation and lower poor health as a result. So resilience is the ability to cope with one's life challenges and adapt to adversity. Uh, Different than happiness, but happiness definitely is a component of resilience. We're going to talk more about resilience tomorrow as well. But I lumped it with well-being because both are important together because it helps to protect us against development of some mental health problems and also physical problems. And so this is where I'll pause and have you write in your journal. What type of things make you feel more uh, more or less resilient and able to cope? So what adds to your resilience in life? And maybe list like three things that increase your resilience. And it might be like a positive emotion you have related to someone, or it could be um, an image that you have that you come to that helps you. So it's not just a self-soothing thing, but actually Purposely attuning to resilience and take a minute or two to do that the idea is to then continue to do that on your own in your journals okay so this is a short reflection to be continued um the other advantages of well-being and resilience isn't just for your mental health problems. It improves learning and academic achievement, reduces absence from work due to sickness, uh, reduces h- risk-taking behaviors like smoking, improves physical health, we talked about that, reduces mortality, and also increases community involvement. So all of those things relate to well-being and resilience. These are five ways to do it, and this is a whole well-being. It's such a huge list, but I'm going to show you a list that I really like. It's going to look like someone just wrote it because it is. Here it is. Well-being, isolation well-being. Shower. Take your medications if you need to, if you have it. Your medication could be your vitamins too. Drink water. Clean one thing, one space. Tend to something that's growing or living. Plant, if you must. Be mindfully present to a sound or a song, a sensory feeling, something you see, a spiritual practice. Reach out to a human outside your home, even virtually. Maybe you can invest in a hugvie, the huggable device that I was talking about earlier. Do one thing to get your heart rate up. If you're exercising, that's good. There's other ways to get your heart rate up. So you can resort to that too. Do one thing you'll be glad you did later. And do one thing just because you want to. Self-indulge. Get in at least one good laugh. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about positive emotion and positive subjective states. This is mainly the work of Barbara Fredrickson with positive emotions. And I love her work because uh, she starts talking about balance later. And then there's a follow-up work from the writers are Cashton and Diner. And they talk about the upside of your dark side, how negative emotions actually help you, which is really interesting because everyone is in, oh, just promote positive Emotional states and really avoid the negative but avoiding the negative isn't actually helpful, but let's look at the positive first so Positive emotions happiness satisfaction with life optimism and hope are source of energy and confidence so what good are positive emotions? The work of Barbara Fredrickson in the seminal study, the University of uh, Michigan, was talking about how um, there's a new model for understanding positive emotions and how it actually uh, expands our repertoire of adaptive behaviors and how it helps our functioning and actually makes us more resilient. In the big picture so how many distinct emotions are there there are fewer number of positive emotions than negative emotions right there is four negative for everyone positive That negativity ratio that we experienced that i talked about before the negativity bias it takes less it's less easy to differentiate Positive emotions, the gradation of positive, like joy, happiness, are almost the same, but they're they're not. Uh, facially and autonomically, they may feel the same. I guess from an endocrine level, they might be slightly different. Uh, the reason that we have such a higher number of negative, of course, is what we talked about already, because of the threats outnumber opportunities, possibly, right? So existing models of emotion, the focus is on negative emotions, anger and fear. Emotions become embodied into action to promote quick life-preserving action. So you have a feeling, then you have a thought, I'm in danger, then you are prompted into quick action, right? And emotions are associated with urges to act. Specific action tendencies like anger, you might urge your urges to attack, fear to escape, and so on. So, that's a built in mechanism that's very evolutionary and is adaptive, right? It's not so adaptive when our environment is not full of tigers and lions and bears. It's not so adaptive if we view our work environment and the demands of our work environment or even our social relationship as full of lions and tigers and bears right because we're not attending to the more positive aspects of emotion so positive emotions do they have an adaptive value and frederickson proposes that emotions may create a thought action tendencies and positive emotions broaden the repertoire thought action tendencies right so it it creates novel creative and unscripted paths of talk of thoughts and action where negative emotions narrow the repertoire this kind of ties back to the neuroplasticity idea the positive emotions broaden our repertoire maybe because we are broadening the pathways that are possible for access and we're making other pathways that are Uh, geared towards thriving and resilience. We're making that more dense versus, versus the negative emotions, which narrow the repertoire. So how many positive emotions are there? So this is the list from Fredrickson, joy, gratitude, serenity, interest, hope, pride, amusement, inspiration, awe, and love. I could go through each one, but um, this is a slide that kind of defines it a little bit more, the primary ones. And if you engage with those daily, there are several areas that your personal resources increase. It increases your physical, intellectual, and social resources. So doing studies with rats or even squirrels, I think they did studies with squirrels, the physical repertoire of um, gathering and feeding and even mating is increased with positive emotion. I mean, positive emotions is induced, of course, in lab. Uh, intellectual, so people who have induced positive emotions in tests are able to perform better. And certainly people who are... Um, attuning to positive emotions and social circumstances are able to relate, connect better, and also then uh, feel the, the advantages of lowered cortisol and lowered stress. So that's how positive emotions help us. So again, as summaries, they broaden the scope of attention, broaden the scope of cognition, broaden the scope of action, build physical resources, build intellectual resources, and build social resources. So uh, intentional engagement and positive emotions on a daily basis. So it's not that you have to search far and wide to find them. You know, the example I used with my daughter is really attuning to a simple positive emotion that you can really just stay with, almost perseverate on, on purpose as to accentuate the effect of it, that's really what I'm suggesting is cultivate a positive emotional state in your everyday living. And this will increase the positivity ratio. And so here is the exercise in your journal, in a sense. Um, You don't have to write all of this down but because it will come back again. But what I do is I look at what's going right in my life. What do I love to do? And then I do it. It's like a playlist of things I love to do. Uh, I'll share some. So I love dancing with my daughter. I put on really silly old music like Cat Stevens on my new record player especially. Uh, And then we dance in our living room. We do that every day because it's my playlist and it induces positive emotions in my life. Uh, Engage wholeheartedly with positive experiences. Accept the fleeting nature of positive emotions. Let them be and let them go. But savor, which is another concept we'll talk about tomorrow, savoring. Quantity rather than quality for the positivity ratio, and keep some balance and accept negative emotions. This is really important when we talk tomorrow about the upside of the dark side. And just to share something about a negative emotion and how it helps, uh, just to give you a taste of why it's important to cultivate the negative along with the positive. So, the research that was done by Cashton and Diner. So students who are confused and work through it, work through the confusion and have negative emotions as they're going through a lesson and don't understand it, what do you think? Do they do better on subsequent tests or less well with the people who have happy emotions all throughout and get it? You can't answer again, but I will tell you those people who are confused and have negative emotions and tackle it actually perform better in the long run. Okay. Workers who start the day in a bad mood, negative emotions, but shift to a good mood in the afternoon, uh, how is their productivity with relation to their work compared to those who started happy and stayed happy? So now you're kind of cute already to choose the right answer. Those who started in a crappy mood and then got better actually performed better, were more productive and more invested in their work. So there is a beauty to negative emotions, surprisingly in a way. Uh, what's important is the balance. Because if we don't acknowledge negative emotions, then we are in an avoidant mode, we're just thinking, just think of the positive. Someone uh, called it the Pollyannish perspective. Uh, but really it's negating a adaptive response of our psyche and of our body to also attend to negative emotions. And so the balance is what we want to strike. So we're going to shift to gratitude. Uh, this is maybe a good time to ask if there are any questions because this is the last segment on gratitude.
2: We actually had some questions that came up just as you got started. Eve, oh, good. Eve asked uh, about mirror neurons and exposure to violence and if it means the viewer experiences it
0: too as either the perpetrator or the victim. Mm, that's a great question. Think about that. So, I think the the mirror neurons work in terms of both empathy and feeling the good feelings, but also feeling the negative feelings when they're firing. And so, I think if someone's prone to aggression and they're uh, noticing and viewing aggression, then what's activated is the thought action urge, anger, aggression. And maybe that mirroring is more of the aggression. Yeah. And if, if someone is, again, prone for empathy and nurturance, that that's more the case. But I'm, I let me look at that again. This is a great question. I, I think a lot of it relates to intent and then, of course, personality variables and also states. Thanks for that question. Mm -hmm.
2: Yes, and then Paul asked about a book by Dr. Luis Cozzolino where he found the term the social synapse, and he was curious if you have encountered this term, and if so, how it relates to positive psychology and PERMA.
0: Great, great question. I'm familiar to some degree with uh, Cozzolino's work. Um, I haven't studied it enough to have lots of intelligent things to say with relation to PERMA, but the social aspect of it when it comes to another aspect of PERMA, which is their relationship, the R uh, would have lots of lots more um, applicability to Kozalina's model as well. So we'll pause in the R and we'll talk more about Kozalina's mo- model and their relation to that on purpose now because it's being brought up too. Thanks for that question.
2: And then Natalie just asked if you could explain why it would be quantity rather than quality for the positivity ratio.
0: Great. Uh, Inherently, our four negative is built in. So it's not so much that we can fight the urge to have it. and The goal isn't to increase the one so it's now five and it's competing with the negative the quantity doesn't matter. What does matter is the quality. So if we are able to savor the one, the one becomes the pr- predominant feeling that maybe is pervasive throughout our day or that we take time to celebrate when a positive emotion arrives. Uh, maybe something good happens to us and we the tendency is to... Forget about that, relegate that to chance and then move on with our day and then look for the next thing that could be attacking us, that could be aversive. So the quality is the savoring, pausing long enough to make the quality count for the one rather than increasing the number so it competes with the four. Great question, Natalie. Thank you.
2: And then we have a question about from Delphine about if your research article references will be provided from this talk.
0: Yes, absolutely. I can. I could. uh, A lot of it's in the references that I sent, but sometimes they're also embedded and some of them are in my head because I tend to have a little bit of a photographic memory for research articles, but I can definitely share maybe a more thorough references list. Thank you, Delphine. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) And then Ume asked if a virtual hug
2: would produce cortisol.
0: Yes. So according to that one study, which isn't in my memory, it's actually on my paper, so I can even quote the researcher in a minute when I look that a virtual hug uh, in a way can. It's better if it's with the Hug V device that I was talking about. Remember the it's a it's sort of a plush device that you hug as you do your zoom. It's kind of funky. Uh, this was a twenty thirteen study that was reported. And uh, I have to look through a bunch of paper to find it, but I can find it tomorrow. I mean, Thursday, and give it to you as well. But yes, it can. Do you want one, Ume? (laughs) Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no. Um,
2: And then Natalie just had a comment earlier when you talked about – wealth. And she cited the study about the 75,000 and the importance of equity. So that was just an interesting comment that came up.
0: Okay, great. Natalie, is it it Natalie Harrison? Yes. Can you unmute her for a minute? Yes. One moment. minute. Uh, Natalie Harrison is the clinical psychologist that works with me in the trauma recovery center. And so I would have introduced her as one of the team members in the very beginning, but for whatever reason, we didn't get all the technology going right then. So Nellie, introduce yourself if you don't mind, and then ask, comment.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm a clinical psychologist with the Safe Harbor Trauma Recovery Center. i um, really excited about this talk. I had some personal experience working with nurses recently when my husband was in the ICU and just really saw the need for um, well-being in this kind of work and kind of compassion fatigue that was being talked about a lot when he was in the hospital. Um, Related to the study, which was also sort of in my mind, Um, I don't even have a specific reference. I don't remember exactly what was studied. I believe it was life satisfaction. So I'll do a bit of side research and add the reference in the comments when I find it. But what I'm recalling that they found was that um, looking at different income levels and how there was some fluctuation, and I, I believe it was life satisfaction, Up until about $75,000 a year. And then Mm. from there on up, uh, life satisfaction was pretty equal and didn't fluctuate based on income. So I thought that that was a really important study showing how equity uh, is really important and how, you know, a lot of the trauma, health disparity, that kind of stuff can impact satisfaction, well being, and happiness.
0: Thank you, Natalie. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the, the statement of uh, money can't buy happiness, uh, definitely if it's tied into what I was talking about uh, earlier, which is the disparity in um, health outcomes for people of color and race determines home and, and how COVID is particularly sixfold for death rates and threefold for infection rate is affecting life. It absolutely has something to do with money and life satisfaction. Great comment. Any other comments?
2: We just have one more question from Martin about if the journal has to be pen to paper or if it can be digital on an app.
0: <laughs> well, it's whatever makes you happy, Martin. Really. I love my journal that's um, paper. Because I could just pull it at bedtime and uh, my daughter looks at the picture that's in the cover and uh, talks about it, or even ask her what is she grateful for? And she often says the birds, the sky. And so we do a mutual journal. That's the beauty of paper and pencil. But certainly if your mode is more this age, I think it's the difference between millennials and... What comes before them? I don't remember. But yeah, it, whatever method, I think the most transferable, like sort of handy, is also the most adaptive for me. So paper and pencil is easiest for that reason. Any other um,
2: questions? Yes, Ruth just wanted to double check if it was okay to share that beautiful isolation well being checklist with her clients, if that was all right.
0: Sure. Feel free to take everything I'm using in the slides um, and use them. That's what it's meant for. Use them yourself in your journal. Use it with your clients. You're welcome to take any of it, short of the entire slide, and say that you wrote them. (laughs) Other questions or comments? That is it for now. Okay. Great, thank you so much. I love that you're asking questions. It helps me feel um, acknowledged and validated because it it lets me know that you're listening too. So thank you. So what is gratitude? It's what I'm feeling now for you asking questions, and what is it also? Being grateful. It's a thankfulness, gratefulness, appreciation, a feeling or attitude that acknowledges a benefit or gift that you have or will receive. And when we replace a sense of service and gratitude with a sense of entitlement and expectation, we quickly see the demise of our relationship, society, and economy. This is a quote by Steve Maraboli, which I really liked. Um, It's sometimes hard to cultivate gratitude when we're faced with um, entitlement and expectation. And more often than not, Lately with COVID, we're seeing clients that come in. And again, I want to remind you, they're afraid and they're hurting. And so the entitlement and expectation comes from that. So to be able to reverse our own stance to one of opposite action as we call it in dbt we'll talk a little bit about that uh, on thursday but i just want to mention that definitely the initial response when we're being either attacked or we're facing entitlement or expectation is the urge to defend and sometimes a defense is aggressive and it really takes quite a bit of mindfulness to step back from that And reevaluate, check the facts and decide I'm going to do something very vulnerable and very different, which is to approach this person with kindness. And I want to say that 98% of the time people respond in kind um, with gentleness and kindness So having worked with people in my clinic, we run a DBT clinic, dialectical behavior therapy, for people with uh, self-injury and then suicide attempts. And often they're dysregulated. Often the behavior is hostility, aggression, um, or even self-directed towards self and self-mutilation. And the more you approach them from opposite action to the emotion you feel, the more that you are able to diffuse a situation. So we'll talk more about that when we get to the relationship part. That's part of PERMA. So this is where we pause and we're gonna talk about things that you're grateful for. Why are you grateful for those things? How does thinking about these things make you feel? Okay, don't do that yet. We're gonna come to that, but I want you to just put that in your mind What are you grateful for? How does thinking about it make you feel? Like in your body, what are emotions that are coming up as a result of that? Um, So gratitude allows celebration of the present. It blocks toxic emotions like envy, resentment, regret, depression. Grateful people are more stress resilient. And gratitude strengthens social ties and self worth. People who experience gratitude feel closer to their spiritual life, higher levels of positive emotions, have improved relationships. They feel more loving, forgiving, and they're able to cope with everyday stress. And they also have better physical health, just like the happy people, the grateful people are healthier. This is the work of uh, Glenn Affleck. And he looked at cardiac patients who blame their heart attack on others, they were more likely to suffer yet another heart attack within eight years. So those who were blaming as opposed to those who are grateful for everyday pleasures were more likely to have another heart attack. Those who perceive benefits from initial heart attack, like appreciating life, slowing down, getting family support around them, were more apt to have a reduced risk for subsequent heart attack. And then gratitude drives out toxic emotion of resentment, anger, and envy. And that leads to long-term emotional and physical health in transplant recipients. So this is all a study, the work of Glenn Affleck. More studies by Emmons and uh, McCullough suggest that gratitude strengthens the immune system and lowers blood pressure and reduces symptoms of illness. Also less bothered by aches and pains. So it really works for pain management as well and encourages to exercise more, take better care of our health. And I'll I'll share in a minute what I mean by how they studied gratefulness, because we're going to do it. Anger frustration cause our heart rhythms to become incoherent or jagged. Negative emotions create a chain reaction. Blood vessels constrict, blood pressure rises, and the immune system is weakened. And heartfelt emotions actually cause more stable heart rhythms, uh, more enhanced immunity, and restore natural rhythms of the heart. So here is Frustration Versus Appreciation for Heart Rates, The study done by uh, Hartman Research Center. This is the work of McCready and Childer in 2004. So here comes the exercise. We're gonna pause here. If you have a piece of paper, you're gonna transfer it to your journal later. You have exactly one minute to write down all the things you can think of that you are grateful for. It doesn't matter the order. It doesn't matter uh, whether they seem material-based or not. Don't judge them. Take out judgment and just be present, focused, and mindful about inviting anything in the minute. So when I say start, I'm going to time us. Okay? And go. Right as many things as you can, you too. 10 more seconds. Okay, and time. So just take a look at your list and notice how you're feeling. Notice what comes up and then notice your body as well. What comes up in your body as you're looking at that list? Are the things on the list that surprise you? Are the things on the list you haven't thought of in a long time that you kind of take for granted? Are there things on that list that's similar to my story with my daughter where we just sat on the step and looked at roly-polies that you have some amazement and awe when you look that it's there? And how does that make you feel? This is Martin Seligman's Three Good Things. Um, It's... Thinking about three things, and that could be in your life, in your environment, or at your work, uh, three things that you feel grateful for in your journal. So this is your one assignment today, since you already did the one minute, is what, before Thursday, every day you write three things that you're grateful for that are good in your life, in your journal So this could be what is good in my life, what am I grateful for, what what went well, or it doesn't have to be regimen, it doesn't have to be these three things. Okay, so let's see why this is good to do. Am I telling you that's backed up with science? So they had one group, the Gratitude Journal study, where... They thought of blessings, and they thought of generosity of friends, right to vote, God-given gift of determination, sunset through the clouds, whatever it is that they wrote. These are just samples of what they wrote. Group two wrote the burdens, hard to find parking, messy kitchen, no one will clean, finances depleting quickly, burn my macaroni and cheese. These are also actual things they wrote. And the gratitude group felt better about their lives as a whole, were more optimistic about the future, 25% happier than other participants, reported fewer health complaints, less aches and pains too as health complaints, fewer symptoms of physical illness, and spent significantly more time exercising, nearly one and a half hours per week, more than those in the burdens group. And the other interesting thing, this lasted six months after the study ended. So they looked at this longitudinally and they realized that the gratitude group continued to have those benefits six months later. And who knows how much more because they paused at six months and studied. Okay, so you're gonna try it because this is gonna work for you, especially in the COVID era. And then let's look at gratitude in healthcare settings. This is a quote by John Henry Jowett. Um, I think he was a physician and he said, Gratitude is a vaccine, an antitoxin, and an antiseptic. Interesting for that era to acknowledge gratitude. So, gratitude. Improves sleep, the tendency to exercise, as we saw, cardiovascular health, adherence to medication, mood, optimism, and hope, and reduces those things that are detrimental. Substance abuse, fat intake, cortisol, blood pressure, suicidal thoughts, inflammation, perceived stress, and depression. These are several studies, and here they are. Wong, Owen, and Gabbana. 2015. Adults and college students receiving mental health counseling for depression and anxiety were given those additional therapies. Group one, write a letter of gratitude to another person weekly for three weeks. Group two, write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about stressful experiences. And three, didn't get a writing activity. It was a control. Group one reported significantly better mental health than the other groups one month after writing the exercise ended and again three months later. So actually reducing depression and anxiety. And again, not to say that gratitude alone can solve depression and anxiety, but as an adjunctive component to increasing happiness, thriving, resilience by using gratitude. That's the beauty of gratitude. Another study by Redwine 2016, patients with stage B heart failure were studied He took blood samples and measured heart rates. 50% of study participants kept a daily gratitude journal, and 50% didn't. Those who kept the journals showed fewer biological signs of their heart disease was getting worse. So fewer biological signs of their heart disease was getting worse. So they showed healthier resting heart rate while journaling in the lab. And another study by Huffman, 2014, Patients with psychiatric problems were given one to nine positive psychological exercises to do over eight weeks, including writing a gratitude letter and counting blessings. And those people reported less anxiety and depression than those received standard treatment. And patients with the greatest benefit from the gratitude exercises, uh, especially the gratitude letter, this seems to be a winner time and time again, both the three things from Seligman and the gratitude letter seems to have several studies connected to it with positive results. Now what's happening in the workplace? Well, this is why the nurses approached me because it felt dismal at the time we were starting this a year ago. And here's why, people are less likely to express thanks at work than anywhere else. People don't pause to say, thank you so much for doing this. Even if it's their job and you pause for gratitude, it makes such a difference 60% never or very rarely thanked anyone at work and only 10% expressed gratitude at work in a given day 35 this is interesting 35 worried that expressing gratitude would lead co-workers to take advantage of them this is based on the survey why would they not say something grateful or thankful Because that would lead to, like, let's say, a nurse manager saying to her nurse, thank you so much for taking that shift. I really, really appreciate that. You went out of your way. This means a lot to me because now there's so much less headache about coverage. That nurse manager, this is anecdotally, but I'm applying it here, was worried that next time that nurse will not want to take the shift rather than take the shift because it would mean that she didn't have to do it because she was told. It's kind of an interesting reverse. But what we see is that thanks at work makes people feel happier, and hearing thanks made them happier and more productive by 50%. 50% increase in productivity uh, 18% felt expressing gratitude made bosses seem weak, and 93 said it was it was actually um, more likely to succeed. So grateful bosses seemed effective, not weak, as they thought. In general, thank you from a supervisor boosts self worth and self efficacy, and gratitude recipients become more trusting and more helpful. And according to the U.S. Department of Labor, the number one reason why people leave their job is because they don't feel appreciated. That's what causes the turnover. So pausing to say thank you, and not maybe not just stopping at a thank you, but for thank you for taking that shift. It meant a lot. It it really fixed many issues in terms of coverage, and I really appreciate you going out of the way. That's the way to thank people specifically, precisely in a relevant way. Okay. Here's another uh, Gratitude Helps Healthcare Providers by Cheng, Tsui and Lam, 2015 healthcare providers that twice weekly wrote down things for which they were grateful, showed reduction perceived stress, 28%, and depression, 60% reduction in healthcare practitioners. So this is specifically for healthcare practitioners versus the studies previously or general general public so what I'm proposing is building a culture of gratitude the organization is an entity it's an organism in, in and of itself one that can be ailing and hurting and sick and one that could be thriving and building a culture that's based on gratitude appreciation acknowledgement, respect, honoring, all of those really good things, is what's going to make our hospital, Harvey UCLA, or any community center you work for, anywhere you go for in the workplace, and tackling this era of COVID-19, it's going to make it that much more successful, that much more effective, and that much more uh, pleasurable to be In company of people who are grateful for you all right so that's what we need to foster a culture of gratitude in the workplace Uh, i'm just going to name this and this is a takeaway we're not going to do it now Uh, the gratitude letter that i was addressing is writing a letter of appreciation to a person that either is alive or dead I've done this for my dad. As I, as you noticed, I have this really deep connection with my father. Um, the person who affected you, the feeling that comes up for you when you think of their presence. Send or deliver the letter. But again, if it's someone who's not alive anymore, it's more you reflecting on it. I took my letter to his grave site and left it there with my daughter, introduced her to her grandfather. And she really thought a lot of it. She, I don't know if she got what we're doing, but I told her that grandpa, I brought his picture, and it was a very healing ritual for me, and one that really induced quite a bit of gratefulness. Okay, we are here at the end, and I want to keep my promise of ending on time, but also attending the question. So we'll, we'll end with this lovely slide, and I'll take some questions in the last 10 minutes.
2: So, we have a question, and I apologize if I pronounce it wrong, from Zainab to clarify if the theoretical structure changes from gratitude to thankfulness, which is it when you're talking about positive psychology?
0: Great. Thank you for the question. Great. Um, I think of it interchangeably, but you're right. Thankfulness is sort of the words that you're using to express. What you're feeling when you're being grateful. So, thankfulness could be the actual expressed words, and it could just be, I'm thank you, I really appreciate that. Gratefulness is both the thanking action and the grateful emotion and what it generates for you in your heart, in your body, physiologically. So, if you're robotically saying thank you, you're going around saying, you know, thank you, Charles, for letting me use your studio. And that's all I say. But actually, if I take the time and reflect, you know, he came through for me last minute on a Sunday. We met and troubleshooted the experience. Uh, And I think about all the things that he invested in making this moment be here. And I feel it first before the words leave my mouth. Thank you, Charles, for doing it. I'm more than just thankful, I'm grateful. So gratefulness is both an inner experience that's heartfelt and a behavioral experience of expression. This is such an important point. Thank you so much for asking that. I really feel like without it, we would be missing a huge thing. So I'm, I'm grateful and thankful.
2: And then we just had Kathleen McGrogan share that something very different happens to the brain when you write in a journal versus digitally. What you yes, write is you. integrated differently.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Kathleen. Very good point. Uh, several things happen differently. So the where you process it is different in your brain. Uh, I think I, I haven't done studies myself, but I imagine that in the endocrinology of it, the endocrine system responds different to written by hand versus uh, typing it. And the memory works different. So like remembering what you wrote in pen and pencil and paper uh, actually integrates better and, and the memory solidifies and crystallizes a lot better than when you type it based on some studies I read. Kathleen, do you have anything else to add? You can yeah. unmute her. Yeah,
2: I'll unmute her. She added some other great um, Thank you,
0: Kathleen. There we go.
2: Kathleen, you should be able to speak if you'd like to share more about that topic.
4: Yeah, no, um, just those comments. I I work with some young adults and some youth um, in a confirmation program. And uh, they're being asked to start journals. And they ask the same question, can I do a digital journal? Um, And
0: so but a lot of the great educational research and theory is showing us that they are learning and integrating the information more as they write things down, even just in terms of learning at school. Right. Absolutely, Kathleen. Exactly. So that's one thing that I was addressing is the memory consolidation is better with paper, pencil. Thank you, Kathleen. I realize as I'm asking people to talk, I might be inducing an exposure experience if they are kind of afraid of public speaking. (laughs) So that, that comes with the workshop too. Any other questions or comments? Yes.
2: um, Eve commented that when you type, you use both sides of your brain and you don't have to think about how to form the letters.
0: Yes. Thank you. Great point also. Right. So it's more heartfelt. You're you're contemplating, introspecting more when you're actually writing with your pen. And Claudia
2: just commented that this was very informative and that she will practice it and
0: just express some gratitude. Great, thank you. Thanks, Claudia. Uh, Are these all the comments and questions? I believe
2: that's it for now Eve just added on that you know the light from your computer makes your eyes react differently so make sure to give your eyes a break
0: (laughs) oh thank you that's nice please remember take time for self care Uh, bring some gratitude to yourself do the self compassion head on heart we'll learn that next time Uh, and please be healthy and safe and thriving in every way